0: Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast, brought to you by Source from Sound Agriculture. I'm McCain Vogel, Assistant Editor of No-Till Farmer. In today's episode, Editor Frank Lesseter sits down with Guy Swanson, a 50-plus year no-till veteran. The two of them discuss deep-band fertilizer applications, the creation of the no-till yielder drill known as Old Yeller and the early no-till movement that Swanson and his father sparked in the police.
1: Well, it's good to talk to you again, Frank. Here we are, and it's a rainy day in Spokane. It's been pretty dry on the Great Plains. As you know, uh, last week I did a little survey in, on Nebraska, Kansas, and Colorado, and uh, yields are off about 40 bushels per acre uh-huh. in the 300-bushel range on center pivots in Nebraska. About the top, they were getting up to 313, 300. No-till, by the way. I want to emphasize no-till. And uh, with Mustang banding, and we were getting, um, we got an, actually got an award from Pioneer for hitting 313. Good. But the averages were running around 299 to 300. So we can do it with 140 pounds in. Um, there's no problem. And uh, it's just the weather's got to cooperate. And uh, so this year the top yield was about 267. So the the general feeling is we're missing about 40 bushels in irrigated Nebraska, and in Kansas yields are down, really down. It's 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 either wind or hail or just really tough weather. It won't rain, etc. And so Kansas I think has actually been whipped on a little harder in the dryland scenario especially. So Mm -hmm. uh, we've got weather problems and uh, they're even more significant. I I guess uh, being an old timer, you start to understand, well, this is normal. Weather fluctuates up and down, but this is not the case. This is getting pretty uh, uh, out of control.
2: If you were in this area and you weren't no-tilling, would you get clobbered more with the yield loss?
1: Oh, absolutely! Because the guys that are tilling are losing about four inches of stored soil moisture, mm-hmm. so they're they're basically just playing the crop insurance game, which I think is uh, just a basic way for fertilizer people to raise their prices because they know they're going to get paid. Sure. So it's not really the same type of farming that uh, that I grew up with, or knowing that you're always going to break even no matter what, well, it it does allow for some really poor pricing policies. And so the major corps get away with a lot of stuff that they didn't get away with when we had a more reasonable crop insurance program, I think. That's a good way to describe it. I think you need crop insurance for a lot of the area, but, boy, it's way too high or something's goofed up. We shouldn't be farming the way we are. It's just Too much government interference, and it comes from Europe. A lot of it is European in its approach, and we have uh, real high hopes that the no-killers will always win. You know, Frank, it's really unfortunate that the STEEP program that was developed in the Pacific Northwest never expanded beyond the area, and it was basically the hidden asset of the Corn Belt. If they sure. could grab that technology, they would have won this battle many moons ago. We wouldn't have the pollution in the lakes and the, near the pollution anyway. Right. It's all related to top-dress fertilizer. You and I yeah. both know it's it's all in the wrong place. And um, so I remember Bert Bach and I, uh, Bert was with Tennessee Valley Authority in the 1980s. He had me build him a drill for the TVA, and, and he had the guys pulling around, uh, in ohio and and Indiana, etc, he ran on several locations and they were doing plot work and testing fertilizer placement and The next conclusion was it took too long to do it. Well, wait a minute, even though you got a yield punch, you know, wait a minute, what about the runoff, wait a minute, you know, you can use lower cost forms of fertilizer, come on guys. <laughs> so we got ripped off, um, and I, I'm, I'm just going to point the finger right now, it, it's the fertilizer people that have caused a lot of these problems, and I have a lot of friends in the business, but they're aware of it too that their technology is old, old technology by throwing it out there in the wind and letting the rain run it off and doing it on frozen ground in the middle of winter and, you know, on and on. And, of course, the thing about banding is it takes advanced planning. you got to plan ahead. And and some farmers just don't want to do that. There's so much on the edge, they just let it go, you know. Oh, it's good next year or something like that. So... Yeah, but no-till is the secret with fertilizer placement, whether you're strip-tilling or no-tilling. And banding deep is a lot of the key. It's got to be in there. And uh, certain areas cannot band deep in the country. You you just don't have the soil depths in North Dakota
3: Mm. or
1: on up into uh, Canada. It's, It's basically just very young soils, the glaciers that just left. So the soils haven't really developed very well. But, boy, you get into... Kansas and Texas, and uh, certain parts of Texas, you can band deep. You can put it in seven, eight, ten inches if you want to, and tuck it away so the wind can't get it, and the erosion doesn't take it away, and stabilize it using thiosulfates and really some cool stuff that's going on. Very economical.
2: So these no-tillers yeah. that are not set up to deep band right now, and they're they're broadcasting. And then Mm -hmm. you lose some of that, and maybe you should incorporate that fertilizer, but that's kind of against no-till, and so they do nothing. Would they be better off to incorporate it or be pure (laughs) no-tillers?
1: Well, if you're a pure no-tiller, you can do it with single-disc openers. I was just in the field in Nebraska uh, Thursday training a, a producer as well as one of our sales guys. And uh, this guy, um, you know, just takes it up over the top. And he was a tillage guy when I first met him. He was in his 15th year. He started out the first seven years. He was uh, tilling it up, you know, because of manure. They were spreading manure. And so he felt like, well, we just got to stick with tillage, get it covered. And uh, so eventually we kept all the angles and a lot of broadcast emails and, you know, just a lot of things. They just need the reinforcement of banding. And so he finally went to deep banding. When I say deep, minimum six inches up to eight inches typically. We just changed the world for him. And it it takes less water for the pivot, uh there's no virtually no erosion. I I pulled into the field and there was one spot. Where did all that water come from when the soil was moving? Oh I see it came through the culvert as it came off the road. It came into the field. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, but the rest of the field was just perfect. It sucked it all up. It was just beautiful. They had a three-inch rainstorm um just in a very short period of time, right there at West Point, Nebraska. And that was, I think, in about uh, mid-September, I believe. And uh, but yeah, it it works. It just flat works. And of course. I think uh, in this guy's particular case, you know, he's one of the guys that can squeeze it up over the top. He can hit 300 bushel corn, no problem. He can average 300 bushel corn with 140 pounds in and and ammonium thiosulfate and potassium thiosulfate in the band. Yeah. So it's confidence. Where does it come from? Where do you get confidence? Well, it's year after year, and it's a father talking to his son. Yeah. (laughs) You got to have them. I mean, it's just father and son. That's the way to do it. You know, the best trainers, always the best trainers is the man with the wisdom.
2: You brought up the father, son. Let's go back to you and Mort. When did uh, Mort get started in no-till and when did you come along and get on the bandwagon?
1: Well, it was, there was no reluctance on my part. You know, I just believed in it, but, uh, you know, we were big flowers. Oh man. 12 bottom plow. I'd sit on a D six with a Detroit in it, you know, and a ammonia tank on the front of it. And I'd plow it in in the fall. We were recropping with a plow. Wow. That, that you talk about move dirt downhill. That's how you <laughs> do it. it yeah. Whoa. So I, I saw red dirt start to show up for the first time. And, and, uh, he knew it wasn't the way we had to stop it. And, uh, so he messed around, uh, you know. To answer your question, he, I just saw him do a lot of things, and and then I had a like a three year hiatus. I was, you know, in Europe with Caterpillar, and I came home uh, to work with him. And um, that fall, he wanted to try no-till, mm-hmm. and uh, he had a a friend at WSU, good friend, uh, silver star winner in World War II. His name was uh, Lyle Nagel, and Lyle knew that Roundup was coming. Uh And uh, so we started uh, some of the first experiments with WSU and and applying Roundup. but then it was just, you know, a numbered material. We didn't even have the technical name glyphosate. And we just found out it worked pretty good. And so um, it was, I think, that first field we did uh, set a record yield for that particular field, in fact. It was winter wheat on spring wheat. And it was fertilized and banded, uh, fertilizing and uh, seeded with a set of conventional drills. But it wasn't uh, totally applicable long term. So we knew we had to switch to a um, a purpose built machine. I mean, there was no, a lot of people tried to convert an existing machine or try a lot of things. You know, it's pretty sure. typical to think that way. Right, right. But we ended up with old Yeller and... Uh, that was an amazing story. Um, let's see, Mort got it all. We, well, he and I hauled all the parts down, and I, I just kind of circulated around, tried to find all the componentry. We got the monitors on it, all that. Got it running by the end of September. So we were seeding winter wheat in October, which is pretty late for the and, what, um what, what
2: year What year would this be?
1: That would be 74, fall okay. of 74.
3: Okay, go ahead.
1: And and it was a big machine. It was um, you've seen it before. And that machine uh, was able to go into pea ground and lintel ground, uh, legume type soils, spring wheat. Gosh, it did an excellent job. It was just designed for the hills because it was so stable. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was nine inch spacing. Had double runs on it. Uh, had a starter box for phosphate, and then it had a front box for ammonium nitrate. Mm-hmm. And we thought, well, that's the way you know till is you just broadcast it over the top. It wasn't long before we were in serious trouble with um, weeds, serious weed <laughs> problems. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it, it's uh, it's just it was working. It was really working. And by the end of that fall, I think Mort went to Hawaii, and that's when we saw you. Yep.
2: Exactly right,
1: and. Uh, <laughs> I got the job of custodian of the machine, Uh, and it was still custom seeding, and and they had moved it up to Spokane, and Raymond Hansen had to have a try at it, you know, Mort's best friend, Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, we seeded way too late, it was Thanksgiving, we were still seeding away, but by that spring, we tried spring cropping, and that was not good, and there was no fertilizer placement. It just top dress. And, of course, it can't get to the roots quick enough. In the Palouse, you've got a rainfall pattern that doesn't allow spring cropping unless you place the fertilizer. Top dress fertilizer is a disaster. And uh, so we figured that one out. And then there was a nice research program at WSU. And and the guy that really broke it through was uh, Fred Kaler. And he knew that placement was the answer. And uh, so... You know, we were all working together really closely. There was no lack of information sharing. You know, county agents were on top of it, and the university was on top of it. Then Idaho got into it. Then Oregon State got into it. By the time 79 came around, we had tried urea top dressed, and that was sure. a mistake. And then we finally said, okay, Fred Kaler's got it figured out. Let's Let's build a placement drill. We couldn't buy it, you know, his old saying was if you can't son, if you can't buy it, you got to build it. And uh <laughs> so here we go again and uh we put that second drill uh second series, you know, became the uh, yielder, which was actually started out as a pioneer. Sure. And um and and so we moved it to the name yielder. And because that's what it was doing. It, it it got us into spring cropping. Uh we could make that work. We could use anhydrous ammonia, we could use aqua ammonia, all these volatile forms of fertilizer that could not be considered previously. Well we could band it and, and then we began to progress and and then I remember one time oh about nineteen eighty four, about the time we had really broken through with pear drill. and I was I was down at uh, the, the farm and the last of the crop was coming in, and God, it was just in soft white wheat. It can really yield. It was yeah. up and way up there, way beyond what we would ever have anticipated ten years earlier. Um, it was probably in the 140, 150 bushel range. And I said, "The more, you know, Dad, we got to get, we got to get a scale out here so we can really double check stuff." You know? <laughs> and he looks at me and he says sun, see that ring up there on the bend? That is, the grain is right now at that ring, and that's 140 bushel average, and I've got another 15 acres to come in. And I thought, okay. <laughs>
3: well,
2: Do it um, by
1: the rings. Yeah, volumetrically. Yeah.
2: So some of our listeners are not going to know what a yielded drill looked like, so what were... Um, what would a normal one be? Eight row, sixteen row, what?
1: Well, that's kind of interesting too, because we had uh quite a discussion about that. And um we hand wrote out all of our design criteria and um you know, I was wanting to uh, do some custom uh, sure. operations. So to answer your question, the first old yielder was uh, was about a little over twelve foot nine inch. And um, And, of course, it was stabilized with these outside wheels so it could Mm -hmm. get around the steep, loose hills. But, you know, he says, uh, it's good enough, you know. And I said, boy, I don't know. I don't think that'll be a goer. Why don't we do 20 feet? Mm -hmm. Boy, that was a leap ahead because that ran the bill up pretty good. (laughs) And uh, so we pulled in a couple partners and we built two machines. And, of course, his old saying was, you never want to build an orphan. And so... We built two, and, and then uh, I had actually gone out and gotten some orders to build another three,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and um, it was, uh, um, you know, a pretty heady time because we um, were pretty confident we had it figured out, and the economics were so powerful. It was like a $40 an acre advantage, which that was a lot of money in 1980, sure. and uh, so we we pursued it as a 20-foot machine, and... We spaced it on on um seven and a half inch spacing with fifteen inch row bands that ran between uh those two seven and a half inch rows.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: then we we ran it pretty deep. You know, we got it we thought it was deep. Uh we got it in about four and a half inches. And uh then um as time progressed they went all the way out to... 25 feet, and then we actually built a 40-footer that went up into Canada. It was two 20s hooked together on a special hitch. And then we actually skinned them down um, to 1815, oh, let's see. There was a 12 uh, and a 10, and then there was 8-foot plot drills that universities had. I think we built about five of those uh, very narrow plot machines.
2: So on this twenty-footer, what would it have weighed?
1: <laughs> um, it was heavy. Um, the first two were quite heavy. Uh, we overdid it on the frame, and the box was uh, too heavy. We ended up weighing in at about thirty-two thousand, and we had a a design, and that's without the liquid tanks or the, you know, the amenities that we later added, and then. As we progressed, we got the frame weight down, we got the box weight down, and then had a customer in Texas, he mandated stainless steel construction, and once we built them stainless, that was the way it was done from there on out. I think we only built a couple. um, I think we built 10 mild steel versions. All the rest were always built with stainless
3: yeah,
1: and you could leave your fertilizer in it, you know, if you got caught in a big rainstorm, or you could operate in high humidity in Texas, you know, along the Gulf Coast, or so. Stainless construction was a big part of the selling point. It didn't cost that much extra, really. Right. Yeah.
2: So, in the, these guys that ran the Yielder drills in the 70s or 80s, what would they be using to no-till today?
1: Well. Believe it or not, there are still quite a few yielders running um, in the steep Palouse and uh, in Nebraska, and uh, I can tell you a little side story on that eventually here. But um, to answer your question, the the progression began to a greater width, and it came primarily uh, in North Dakota. Sure. And um, it came from um, companies – in Saskatchewan that had to cover these massive acres, and they would have to have like, you know, 20,000 acre farm. they have to have five drills to cover it. Right. So, um, they weren't so concerned about yield. That was the other thing. And so, they went to shank type seeders, and and they uh, blew the seed in, of course, and, and that hurt some of the seeding depth and some of the accuracy issues, but for them, it was more like federal crop farming. I mean, as long as you're going to get an insurance check and you get the acres covered, yield didn't mean much. And right. and that was in the late 80s when the farm program changed. Um, there was no reason to prove up your yields. And that's how land was bought and sold. In the 80s, when the yielder it was sold on proven yield. So you always kept track of your records. You tried to get your uh, rotation just right. And um you know there was ideal rotations best best cash flow was always um involved barley in the rotation, so it might be barley peas, wheat, and uh it could be winter barley too. There was some winter barley that was pretty popular but in in general, that proven yield um was was the requirement that you had bragging rights, and you could say, "Well, you want to buy my farm, here's my proven yield." Yeah, we don't do that anymore, and that all went away in about, well, I guess in the second semester of Ronald Reagan. That's when the farm bill totally changed, and CRP came in, and the high, high interest rates. Oh man, that made it so difficult. Right. And um, which I mean, people think these are interest rates we're in right now are high. Hey, they don't even have a clue what high interest rates are. I actually sold machines at 18% interest rate. And I I remember driving out of the field, and I said, "Um, this guy, if he makes it, it, I just wouldn't believe it, you know. (laughs) Well, we found him a partner to split the, the drill ownership with, and he became one of the most successful farmers in southern Idaho, and his partner was at Walla Walla. They had two different uh, operating windows, you know, on the weather. And so one could go early, the other could go late. And it worked out really cool. They hauled that drill back and forth for 15 years.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, we bought we bought a couple of publications in early, including No-Till Farmer in early 1981, I think. And I remember uh-huh. the contract saying it was, a, it was kind of a variable interest rate, but the maximum they could charge was 14%. Yeah. A year or two later, I was damn glad that it was 14% max.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah, you had to pay stuff off fast. You really had to pay it off. Right. And if you didn't, pretty soon it was getting into land values. And that's when we really unwound the whole thing. The land values started to slide away. Once that happens, boy, it's a, it's a downer. Right. And as you know, that was tough in Iowa. And it was. I had a good friend that he was bound and determined. Uh, well, I think I can probably say his name, Steve Mater. Sure. And he he had 160 that sat right in the middle of his big Pullman farm, and he decided that he would buy it. Mm. And he paid a premium for it. I think he paid like $1,500, and within two years, it was worth half of that amount. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and he was trying to support the land values. He was pr- trying to protect himself, but. You know, it just, it was just so damn difficult to get through that. And uh, boy, I tell you, that's when you found your real friends, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Gosh, yeah. So uh, uh,
2: when we started No-Till Farmer in 1972, there were about 3.2 million acres of no-till. Today, the best guess I make is about 106 million acres. Do you think the no-till acreage is flat? Going down or going up?
1: I would say that it continues to expand. I think that would be the term. Okay. But with these tough weather scenarios, I don't see how you can continue with tillage. It's just you have to to get those nutrients down in the ground where the weather can't get to it. Hmm. You have to go after techniques that are actually born and bred in no-till. And that's sure. fertilizer placement, and and so if you want to keep doing it, man, you gotta you gotta start pulling the pulling the weight here and use these great techniques that, that came out of the steep program in the Pacific Northwest in the '80s,
3: mm.
1: when these great scientists really got on it, Pappendick and Jim Cook, all these guys, you know, right. And uh, yeah. we had um, uh, an opportunity, but you know the. It just wasn't placed right or something because we had this real down period of high interest rates, and then we had to ride through um, the no-till image, you know, and, oh, there's another crop failure. And then, boom, you know, guys that got into fertilizer placement, all of a sudden they were starting to win. They started to understand it. And then we were able to prove that ammonia could be deep-banded and uh, aqua-ammonia could be deep-banded, which you know, that that's a cakewalk anymore. That's so simple to do. And just getting it on uniformly and that time of seeding and boy, it pays big dividends. So it's up to the individual to answer your question. I think it's an expanding scenario because these federal programs are going to be about stored soil carbon and they're going to be about nitrous oxide and they're going to be about cover crop. You've got You know, the cover crop, it gets pros and cons. It kind of reminds me of no-till in the initial get-go. The problem is it all has to be readjusted to the particular area. Maybe you shouldn't carry it out so far. You know, maybe you just need to get the root growth there Mm -hmm. and then, you know, terminate it so it doesn't interfere uh, with top yields. And now the crop insurance people need to understand that, that there's just cultural things that need to be adjusted. Right. But I I do know that keeping that ground uh, alive and stimulated man that's worth a lot of money and the only way you do it is with no-till.
2: Right. Yeah, well, so it's a,
1: got a great future. Yeah. yeah.
2: I was I was a kid after World War II, so I'm an old old guy now like you, but mm. my my grandfather and my dad were always planting cover crops then we got fertilizer commercial fertilizer had come along and that kind of died off with cover crops but now we're back into it and we got a mm-hmm. lot of believers in in cover crops but then the, this has been a tough year for some people with cover crops because of the drought and they're mm-hmm. they're saying they didn't get the return or didn't get what they thought they were going to get and the, there's some mm-hmm. question whether some of these guys are going to plant cover crops this fall or a year from now now
1: I'm on the other side. Um, I have, you know, done primarily fumigant cover cropping using Pacific Gold Mustard. And we get great, great returns. And we have follow-up programs. We're pulling uh, samples, looking for nematodes. We discovered that we're getting uh, control of uh, white mold and charcoal rod and soybeans. Um, There's a lot of worldwide documentation about using these fumigant brassicas. Mm -hmm. And I always make sure we source the best seed and we're always in connection with the breeder. The breeder knows exactly what's going on. And um so I I I would say I'm on the other side. I I know that mustard is one of the best choices. And uh you know the the frost terminates it. I uh, was just sure. in a field in Nebraska and it's it's just beautiful. It's all it got knee high and then died off and you ought to see the residue on top of the ground. And all those leaves are loaded with glucosinolates. And so we have shifted the rotation. It, we finally got a third crop in there. Now that's going to make a big, big difference is getting that third crop and and making, making it really pay. I think that's one of the biggest opportunities is, is that third crop. And even though you're really only raising two cash crops, at least you've got high yield potential. By keeping the disease issues, Uh, you just you're too close in the rotations typically to. So you're talking
2: you're talking corn, soybeans, then like a mustard crop.
1: Well, we hit the hit it with mustard uh, right uh, in September, uh, like in Nebraska conditions. Around Omaha, we'll uh, fly it on, or we'll apply it with lime if they're going to lime the field. If it's a green chop field, you can lime it. Um, but we fly it on with a drone, uh, fly right down the rows of soybeans, and get it to drop right through the canopy. Right as the, ye- the within a day or two, the leaves just drop, hmm. and and of course the mustard seed uh, just goes right through the canopy. And it's uh, I I think I haven't really uh, figured out um, everything, all the details of how to really raise mustard, but. One thing I learned this last week, I was in Kansas, around Lyons, Kansas, and Mark Ricker says the best returns he's ever gotten, he raises irrigated winter wheat, and then he, he seeds mustard right behind the winter wheat, and this year it bloomed, and he went to seed. (laughs) <laughs> well, he kind of probably took it a little too far. You want to, you want to green chop it or break it down right before um, you know it, it actually starts to set seed. All but if right. it, it that winter kills, it's not a noxious weed or it's a domestic mustard. That's that's it's called an Oriental mustard. It's real high in glucosinolates. You know, it's a, it's an old trick from my granddad. You know, he used mustard in the rotation. Right and uh, before herbicides and uh, all these other issues and before fertilizer, the mustard was a big part of uh, cropping systems. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So you're talking mustard. You're not talking canola.
1: Mustard, high glucosinolate Oriental uh, mustard uh, okay. bred purposely as a fumigant mustard. Okay. And and you'll you'll find uh, all other types of mustards. There's um you know all through the production cycle, the potato guys are really big on it because it nails nematodes. Mm-hmm. And so you can shorten the potato rotation if you get mustard on board. And so the irrigated guys will in potatoes you know, they got giant margin and they use so much a chemical to fumigate. Right. And the real simple way to do it is biological. So they're coming down from a hundred and fifty dollar an acre fumigation operation to a fifty dollar an acre biological operation
3: mm-hmm.
1: and we're coming down from that to a fifteen to twenty dollar an acre operation in corn and soybeans. And and we just time it better and make it work better. So, you know, if there's a will or there's a way. That's kind right. of how it all works out, you know.
2: Right. What would happen to no till in the US if glyphosate got banned?
1: Yeah, that one is, I think there's some hope. I was at Husker Harvest Days, and I met with two manufacturers that are able to target weeds. And, you know, they got the smart technology. And uh, one was from Holland, and the other was a U.S. manufacturer out of the Willamette Valley. Uh-huh. that has got the computer power on board to really artificial intelligence they can pinpoint the weed the species and nail it and you know that that means that other herbicides would work just as good as glyphosate uh-huh. because of intensity you right. you can hit it with, with a much more impactful rate and um, and that might be some of the salvation right there is yeah. intensity and um i think um you know joel mcclure i think he bought one in fact i haven't confirmed that yet i know he did a demonstration but he needs that at Hugoton because the 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 weeds they go into stress and you can't kill them
3: hmm.
1: because they're they're so they're all the stomata is closed up you know and they're just trying to survive all the heat and the wind and the dust and and so they survive. You don't hit them with a high enough rate, and so right. they're doing well. And then out comes the iron, and they start sweeping stuff. You know, you can't kill stuff. Well, I guess going to go back. And, well, this machine might be it where we can really smack that stuff and mm-hmm. probably reduce the overall cost per acre significantly. Right. Kind of sounds like an exactric story, doesn't it? <laughs>
3: right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Less is actually more. If you get the technology working for you, hmm. you can, and it's like no-till. It's just, it's a producer-driven project. The herbicide people aren't going to drive. It. No, that's right. that'd be the last thing they'd want to do is reduce rates or. Re- There's, you're not reducing rates. You're just increasing intensity, hmm. and and then then you've got to kill on your hands you can take care of them yeah gosh darn it i tell you i wished i had all this stuff back 30 40 years ago man you could you could have some quite a business right right. we're we're just too old (laughs) yeah well crust yeah that's the real i think there's a drill manufacturer called crust buster and we're crusty and we we can bust them <laughs>
3: right, <laughs> right. Well, very good yeah if you
1: if you can't baffle them with bullshit you can do it with brilliance frank right. that's There's just you, you you have to be able to get wisdom to understand and and the young guys don't have it they have no clue about what we've been through and that's why you you're so key always the farm editors are absolutely key in making great success stories you know, you probably made me a million ti- millionaire many times over by just a simple article. I remember the one that was in uh, Farm Journal by Glenn Lorraine. And sure. all of a sudden, Katie barred the door. We couldn't build them fast enough. Yeah. yeah that was in the 80s and uh, paired row. And, um, you know, paired row today still remains the number one way to raise grain yeah. in the Northwest. It is absolutely superior, and it's phosphate. And phosphate and potassium. So, yeah, um, yeah I wish uh, wish we could do it um, a little differently. You know, the, our old buddy, the government, is still the problem. And, you know, they got their way of doing things. I think you just let free enterprise roll and let the really smart guys figure it all out and get the land-grant guys in there to really help spread the word. Guys like Paul Yaza or Dave Huggins or Dr. Shepherds at University of Nebraska. God, these are all really smart people. And right. They work at it really intensely. You know, when you sleep on a problem, you really figure out answers. And yeah. it's just too much shooting from the hip when you really need to sleep on it, you know.
2: And you're talking about the impact of farm editors, and we we have another magazine here that goes to horseshoers, uh, you know, guys that put shoes on horses. And mm-hmm. three or four years ago, I got a call one day from a friend of mine in New York, and he said, uh, you know, four or five years ago, you did a story that I thought in the magazine I thought was really stupid. He said, mm-hmm. it didn't make any sense to me at all. And I, I was going to call you up and kind of yell at you, and then I decided, ah, uh, I guess I won't. I'm, I'm going to do it. Well, the reason I'm calling today is I can't find that article, and I got two horses that that idea will work on, and I can't find the <laughs> article.
1: <laughs> Prior to the Internet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is the deal. I mean, you you just got to get the correct information. Not the information. You got to get the correct information. Right. Yeah, it's just so hard to sort it out. Who wrote the article? Oh, okay. I see he's from the petroleum industry. Okay. Well, we won't pay attention to that one. (laughs)
0: Right.
1: You got to get the right piece of information.
0: We'll come back to the episode in a moment. But first, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Source from Sound Agriculture, for supporting today's podcast. If you want to make your fertilizer plan more efficient, source it. Source from Sound Agriculture optimizes the amount of crop nutrition supplied by the microbes in your soil, providing 25 pounds of nitrogen and phosphorus per acre. It's cost effective and easy to use. Just throw it in the tank and spray in season. If you want to unlock your crop's potential and increase ROI, there's only one answer source it. Learn more at sound.ag. And now, let's get back to the episode.
2: So out there in the Palouse, you've got really steep hills and you've got hillside combines. What percent of Palouse and wheat or whatever do you think is no-till?
1: Oh, well, let's put that a little bit further out there. I think true no-till True no-till. Are they no-tilling in the fall? Are they no-tilling in the spring? Is the stubble up through the winter? Yeah. Um, are they shanking it, you know, putting some fertilizer down and calling it backgrounding and two-passing it, you know? I think it's really small. It's 25% at the most, and it should be 100. It right. should have been 100 by now. Yeah. And it just, it's so economically powerful and it's so good for the environment and the fish and the dams and yeah man i hope they don't tear out the snake river dams because if they do they're going to find a lot of old tires <laughs> you know it just and those things are they had to stop it from uh, they that's part of why all the money went in to steep was the dams because they yeah. they had calculated out that they would silt shut oh, if huh. they continued with all the tillage so, you know, it's our good friend the diesel engine that, you know, really brought on all that uh, that tillage scenario. They could not till that ground uh, with horses. It was just impossible. They, they were doing short shearing and trying to um, – they just wouldn't flop it unless they just absolutely had to. And so – When the D4 came, you know, they'd hook up a three-bottom plow, and they could get up on steep ground, and then pretty soon, you know, they had to have a three-longer D6 or a big D6, and then they got a D7, and California really went to town on the tillage. Oh, man, they really eroded it. But in the Palouse, you've seen all the dynamics of the tillage and what it's done, and Boy, we just would have been so much better off if we could have avoided it, kept the horses in play or turned it back to grass or something, you know. Right. Well, <laughs> it, I got, it, we just did it wrong. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I got my No Till Maverick book in front of me, and uh, it's a picture you gave me. I'm going to read the uh-huh. caption, then we'll talk about it. Conventional yeah. tillage. Some 200 tons of topsoil per acre were lost from this conventionally tilled summer fowled field following six inches of rain and it's this all this dirt sitting on the roadway
3: so mm-hmm. out
2: there you, you know you had guys that had to scrape the mud we're, we're scraping the snow off our roads and you were scraping the mud off your roads
1: oh yeah very common occurrence yeah and the county engineers know who the no tillers are they have the clean <laughs> ditches they got the clean ditches yeah, yeah. and the guys that are doing the tillage operations, they got to clean them four or five years apart. They're out there with specialized backhoes trying to reform the ditch.
3: Yeah. No,
1: it's, it was a big, big mistake to tear it apart. Okay. But, you know, the soils are so deep. And, and producers, it's such a little speck of time in the great aura of building soil. You know, and the glaciers and all the things that happened, and, um, and snow and even the animals, all the grasslands. Yeah, they just we just wiped it out. I mean, we got rid of alfalfa. That was the end. That was the end of the really good soil. Yeah. Now it's it's so variable. Hilltops are are. Uh, red clay and and you can't you can't work it like your granddad did there's no way it just yeah we just tore it apart and uh and everybody courses on a mission from god they think you know i'm feeding my family what else am i going to do yeah no it's always best to conserve always right. it always is best
2: well, this article in the in the book that we're talking about, I we had a headline that said soil losses can top twenty four thousand dollars per acre. So that is a real, real, real loss.
1: Yeah, I think I remember that picture, and uh, and I know exactly where it's at. And it's one of the most erosive areas of Whitman County, Washington, mm-hmm. and um, it's just. Ah yeah, I just it just makes you shake your head and and of course then they have not only do they get all the mud off the road and the dirt off the road and then they redig the ditch then they got to go get the gravel and re-gravel the road. Yeah. And uh, so the county engineers, you know, they feel blessed when they got a no-tiller. <laughs> they don't like the the erosion, you know. Yeah. But think how bad it could have been, you know, if we would have stuck with the old approaches Sometimes the fields were plowed every second year.
3: Hmm. They
1: even plowed pea ground at one time. Wow. When I heard that report, I said, who in the heck was doing that? <laughs> it was my neighbor. He <laughs> sock <laughs> a plow in the pea ground. Yeah. yeah. You know, Mort, you always used to say, well, it, it beats summer fowl. Well, it did. It did. But... Pea ground, you know, it didn't go any deeper than about two, three feet. So you had that deeper four, five, six, seven-foot depth for winter wheat. And and so you did a recharge, and so it was a lot better than summer fowl. Yeah. And uh, it, it brought on um, a real improvement in the economic structure because peas became the really the vital secret of the area area along with garbanzo beans legumes became really important because they didn't go quite as deep and then they left that reserve there for a great winter wheat crop
3: yeah
2: back here in the the corn belt it looks to me like strip tillers are doing a better job of no tillers and accepting deep banding and uh a week or two ago, you told us about some new research at Beck's down in Indiana. They had done on banding. Can you summarize that?
1: Oh, about the, the massive root system. Sure. And uh, I think uh, I think that was a great article. We copied it all off. And they, I can't remember how much rooting they found with corn. Corn's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And if you get the, the the fertilizer down, I mean, it's 40, 50 more bushels an acre. And that's why strip tillers are doing a better job because they have got to place the fertilizer when they strip till. Right. That's how that's what sells strip till. Mm-hmm. And um, and so but no tillers, they don't get it down and they end up, you know, starving the plant and feeding the weeds. And mm-hmm. you don't want to be doing that. You want to get it. Jim, there's actually five steps. That you get the the absolute no-till promise. You get the rooting channels to get the most moisture moisture in the ground. The the second thing is, uh, if you ban your nutrients, then you've raised the efficiency forty, fifty percent higher levels of efficiency. And then you have to say to yourself, well, do I cut the rate? Yeah, you do. You don't have to apply as much. Mm-hmm. Because the next thing about strip till number three item is it's indexed, indexed right to the seminal roots. You know the the main taproot and the seminals and corn. It's it branches out a little more than wheat, but you get absolutely critical access. And then when you band the the, the fourth and fifth step here is is you you reduce the use of the fertilizer. But you up the chemistry and so if you can add um, your phosphate and your potassium and your sulfur and make trimonium polyphosphate potassium thiosulfate in the band that adds a lot of value and the final point is uniformity yeah. <clears throat> if the band is absolutely in a streaming flow the bandwidth is exactly the same and when you see it for the first time you realize not the per acre rate that counts it's the band rate and further stated it's the streaming flow and so many producers don't understand that that streaming flows are actually much more efficient than dry flows and they don't reduce their polyphosphate or their liquids when they start using liquids in other words a 100 pound rate is the Kansas recommendation for phosphate and strip till Mm-hmm. And our guys are running um, at about 20 pounds. 100 pounds p is an irrigated production rate. So those those five critical steps are uh, absolutely mandatory. Right. To get so, the most value.
2: Right. So for 10-15 <laughs> years, you've been you've been involved with the Exactric system. Can you sum up what it really does for farmers? For people who don't know what Exactric is at this point.
1: Yes, it is um, kind of a serendipitous discovery uh, with ammonia. It was done on a Yildur drill in about 1983, and we wired up a Raven system backwards. And so instead of uh, our net effect is that the uh, ammonia lines, instead of frosting, they melted, and we were injecting straight liquid ammonia out of the tank. And you could do that with a yielder drill at 15 feet. You can bring it right out of the top valve, and it'll go in the ground as a liquid. Those applications gave us the stimulus to study it more. And and so by we had about 19 different projects that didn't work. We finally got it figured out. Yeah. And the final event we took an orifice, a special manifold, and a pump. And the orifice was the key right at the injection point. So it stayed liquid right to the point of injection. And then we could get it down inside the opener. So it became a piece of opener technology. Stopped all the freezing. But man, did we get crops. Sure, It was something else when I first saw it. Did it with Dennis Haugen. Remember Dennis? uh, Out in North Dakota.
2: So correct me if I'm wrong here. It (laughs) seems to me that your success with Xactrix seems to be in the Western Great Plains, maybe Western Kansas, Texas, Oklahoma, into the Dakotas, is that right, or Nebraska, is that right, or am I wrong?
1: No, that is the focus, and um, why would that be? That was my
2: next question.
1: (laughs) Yeah, why would they be so revved up on it? And, um, well, Altitude's one thing. You know, they're up to 4,000 okay. feet on the Colorado-Kansas line.
3: Mm-hmm. The
1: pH is high. The uh, wells are deep. They're a lot deeper than what you imagine. They're down now down at around 600 feet. Mm-hmm. So the Ogallala's drying up. You can't get water. So, all right, so maybe no-till ought to be it, right? They've got to right. no-till to get the top yields. They've got to get the fertilizer down in the ground because it may not rain. It will not carry it in. Right. So the dryland guys get the advantage of banded nutrients in moist soil, and they don't have to worry about the rain. So they can actually raise a good crop without a rainstorm. Yeah, and that's what happens in the northwest. And uh-huh. uh, we we raise really good crops, you know, with no rain on the crop. It's just stored soil moisture that does it. So they're very similar to the Pacific Northwest, where we store our moisture. Seventy percent of it gets stored through the winter as either snow or cold rains. Uh-huh. And, um, and so the, the soils are very deep, and the rooting of uh, winter wheat is such that it'll go very, very deep. But spring wheat won't, and that's why we had the uh, very discerning results initially with no-till because we could not get the fertilizer in the ground, so the spring wheat was not going to get much rain on it. But boy, when we started banding uh, at the time of seeding, uh, that technique worked.
3: Hmm. And
1: now we were able to raise uh, dark northern spring wheat where that was not considered a possibility. Average spring wheat yields were in that thirty five bushel 40 bushel range in really good scenarios, and today it's a hundred hundred and twenty bushel is the top wow. yield, yeah, so for spring cropping, it made a big difference and, uh, in in dryland scenarios. well, that fits Kansas same way, mm-hmm. and it's Milo, and Milo's the one that just loves no-till there's about seven million acres, I believe, in Milo. And, and uh, uh, kudos to uh, Walter McClure. He's the breeder. That's uh, Joel McClure's dad, Joel okay. and Ben McClure. He was the breeder in Milo. And uh, when Milo broke through on the Great Plains, they were trying all kinds of different ways to raise it. But the eventualities were that Milo did not like compaction, and it did like no-till, and it did like potassium. And so the development of potassium thiosulfate totally changed how people looked at Milo. And <clears throat> so Milo even got a nice little price boost, you know, because it was pretty popular for export. Yeah. And it's not an expensive seed. It's not like uh, hybrid sea corn. It's very reasonably priced. And so for dryland scenarios, no-till Milo is a big deal. Yeah, And they're harvesting it now. And it rotates good with winter wheat, and it works also with corn. And now they're starting to move milo into ethanol plants. They have an EPA pathway uh, at Quinter, um, Kansas, a campus. They, they can move uh, milo into that plant. Very similar to amylase corn, you know, they how they process it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I found the dynamic also was so damn much fun. Because you had cows. There was cows everywhere. Sure. And pivots and cows and ethanol plants and distillers grain. And then there's oil wells and there's gas wells. And then you start looking at Southwest Kansas and and Texas, you know. Wow, Betsy, man, there's money here. Yeah. And uh, so it's really, um, I thought someday I'd get a helicopter and do a to uh, a rendition of the success of American agriculture. And the first Mm -hmm. place I'd start is Kansas. Because Kansas has got some really good producers, and they've done really, really well. The dairies now have inroaded in there in the western part of the state coming out of California, and they have giant dairies. They make a major impact on grain prices and alfalfa's in the, in the rotation. There's a wonderful crop, alfalfa. Gosh, I yeah. just love that crop.
2: Well, a lot of uh, eastern New Mexico is a number of dairies have gone in there, moved from California, or started up in that area too, which is still in your area of
1: expertise. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Clayton, New Mexico, we've got machines there. Right. Uh, you know the the other thing about the Great Plains is wind,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and it blows. I mean, it's serious wind, and and but with that you get wind power, right. and it's the Saudi Arabia wind, as one of my professors tells me <laughs> at WHU. You know, I mean, we got wind, and that's that's another big uh, economic boost. And, you know, we're going to build ammonia with the wind, and we're going to flat do it. We're going to do it with solar and wind. I'm just finishing up a document here today, ready to go to my guys in Nebraska, about the economics, where we're at. You know, rocking, uh will move with the wind. Mm-hmm. I just took a picture on the Oregon Trail at Blue Hill. And you know what? It's got, got the windmills, the new 1.6, 2. 2.2-megawatt, 2 uh, Vestas windmills are up in the air. It's about 8.30 in the morning, and I told my guy, He oh my God, stop the car. <laughs> and right in front of this windmill, he's uh, about seven in the picture, there's a windmill from 1890. Wow. <laughs> and it's running, and there's a little stock, there's a little pond, or, um, you know, water trough right next to it. Right. Yeah, and and the guy's no tilling. You know, there's not a bit of tillage in the field. I'm going to send that to my 96-year-old mother and have her paint that for me. There because you go. It's, it's such a, a dynamic of the Oregon Trail, you know, 1840. Then came the windmill. Then came the power windmills. And there's no till in the foreground. Yeah. It's at Blue Hill, Nebraska. And uh, I've seen that one time before over around Spring uh, Springfield, Colorado, I think it was. I was driving down the road, and there was an old uh, stock windmill right. right next to a wind farm. Uh, oh, that's something else. Yeah. yeah, It tells you the story, you know, how right. they got across the plains, how they established themselves. They used the greatest resource they had. It was wind. If they built a house in... Kansas and the northern tier of Kansas it was built out of limestone if they had to build a fence it was built out of limestone
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know it's just so interesting to see what how um, mankind uh, supports him his growth and builds the economic um, engine and yet it's the wind it's still yeah. one of our best friends now it's I'd not like if to... you're a spray boy but it yeah. it's, <laughs> it's got a future <laughs>
2: It I'd is. like to see, I'd like to see that picture.
1: I'd, I'd love. To I see will that send picture. it to you. Yeah, okay. I'll just pull it out of my phone. I was going to send it to Paul Yaza too. You know, because that's right in his territory, right in his backyard. He's probably seen it all. But right, there's another great scientist, researcher, educator guy. He is a fabulous guy. Right. Hey, we've been
2: we've been talking about an hour, and, and I'd like to get into one more subject. I know it's a favorite of yours, and have you explain it. And that's green green ammonia. You talked earlier about fertilizer prices keep getting jacked up and jacked up and then jacked up again. So tell us a little about what you're doing with green ammonia.
1: Well, I I'd love to talk about it, and I'm, I'll I'll give you the short course because it would take me two days to tell the whole story. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> But, you know, it, it's just change is all it is, and it's the original way we built ammonia. You may not know this, but okay. all the ammonia in the world was built green until 1962. Okay. And it was the uh, United States Army that commissioned a development program, I believe, uh, with um, Kellogg-Brown and Root to build a steam methane reformation system.
3: Hmm.
1: And... uh that's when it became the property of the oil and gas people, and that was 1962, and that was the big change that took a place across the Great Plains and all across America, North America, is because they could build it so damn cheap, and it was about two cents per pound of in, and, and that was the starter rate, you know, and then they got you up to about four cents, and pretty soon it was six cents, and... but. The the deal is it shut down uh, all of the uh, green ammonia plants. Like I put on green ammonia when I was a boy, and uh, it was came from trail breeze BC, uh, a dam along the Columbia, electrolyzers, you know, bubbling out the hydrogen, yeah, and making uh, ammonia through a Haber Bosch processor, and that's how they did it in uh, Tennessee Valley Authority too at Wilson Dam. Sure. So all ammonia that we utilized up until 1962 was, in fact, green. So we're, And some of the technology and the techniques, of course, have evolved not in the U.S. now because it was strictly a program for countries that did not have petroleum. They did not have natural gas, Mm -hmm. and they didn't have access to natural gas. Well, that'd be Switzerland, right? Well, there's a little green ammonia plant in Switzerland. Okay. Uh, There's there's, um, green ammonia plants all around the world now in Monaco. Uh, The Saudis now have jumped into green ammonia. It's called the Nome Project. So why would an oil-rich country be involved in building green ammonia? Well, you know, they're better off to cap the wells and just build it with the solar and the wind because it is more economical. And especially if you're trying to transport hydrogen. Ammonia is a heavy form of hydrogen. It's NH3. Mm -hmm. And you can move it so much more economical. It's about 11.2 times better economics in moving ammonia than hydrogen. And and so as the so-called hydrogen economy begins to flourish, well, you begin to understand there's a supporting actor in making that work, and it probably one of the better actors is ammonia because sure. it's heavy and you can crack out the nitrogen or you can you can burn ammonia. So green ammonia is back on the front burner. Mm -hmm. And uh, what happened is, you know, fossil fuels keep going up in price, plus it's controlled by hedge fund managers and or major um, firms around the world. And it's Putin's baby. You know, he runs the gas station in Russia. Mm -hmm. So uh, the Europeans absolutely want to get rid of this Putin problem. And so you'll find that our technology really comes from Europe and and so because it it's been so pushed to the side in the United States because of the fossil fuel industry and they'll do everything to protect their interest in the in the oil fields especially all that wealth that's in the ground and all the horizontal drilling that's being done um they do all kinds of tricks like carbon capture and we find out well that's not working so good and then we find out we're losing a lot of methane in the field, right in in the walk. And, you know, that thing lights up like a major city at night. It's um, amazing how much is actually coming off of the fracking wells uh, up into the atmosphere. A lot of methane and carbon that's getting away. And um, so green ammonia is a zero-carbon product, and it's right back to where we started. And um the eventualities, by the way, are very similar to steam power.
3: Hmm. And
1: as we went from horsepower to steam power, um, you know, that was a big change because farmers would just basically harvest the residues and feed the horses. And then, yep. of course, then we had to buy kerosene to run the steam engine or buy coal. <laughs> right. So that was an offsetting. And then <clears throat> once the, you couldn't get the steam engine up on the hillsides, they were just flatland machines. And then uh, Mercedes really pushed the diesel engine, got the fuel system figured out with Bosch. Caterpillar finally admitted to the fact, yeah, that's what we got to do. You don't set the woods on fire anymore. You can run the cats out there. You can get up on steep slopes, get rid of the gasoline. Yeah. And here it comes. Here comes the diesel engine. And by 1938, they were the world's largest manufacturer of diesel engines. That's going to happen uh, maybe once in a guy's lifetime, you know, 80 years about max. And that's what we're into right now. We're phasing out the diesel engine. Uh, A lot of guys don't like me to say that. You know, I spent three years with the company, and I was an expert on diesel power. But I tell you, I've seen it coming, and uh, (laughs) I, I know we're on the right path. We're going to be running engines with hydrogen, with diesel to the side, maybe dual fueling, running ammonia engines. There's a Toyota now offers an ammonia engine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Jenbacher uh, in Europe, and then all of the uh, uh, big ships that are coming out. The big two cycles, you know, MAN and Sulzer. Sure. You, you probably remember some of those big names uh, in in diesel engines. They're switching over to uh, instead of burning bunker C in the real. Coarse forms of fueling they are basically just tar coming out of the well, (laughs) but there's so much carbon in it, they have to park all that. And now those ships will run with ammonia and dual fueling. There'll be some hydrogen and some ammonia go together, and they can crack it a little bit. They get get improved burning uh, with dual fueling. So the big ships and all the big announcements that you see from the mega plant guys now are all based on the coastline so that they can fill the bunkers around the world with ammonia. Very big. It's about a 10x growth market. And um, right now we're about 80% of all the ammonia utilized in the United States is for agriculture. The balance is used in steel hardening and uh it's pharmaceuticals sure. and etc but 80 percent of it you know which is about 18 million uh, metric tons goes uh 80 of that ends up uh, yeah i got maybe 15 14 15 million end up in uh agricultural use yeah and of course um that, of that, maybe at the most, 5-6 million, about 33% of it, is directly applied to the land. Sure. And the balance is used to make urea. So who is the biggest user of ammonia in the world? Who who builds the most ammonia? Well, I've got to tell you, those Chinese fortune cookies, I opened up one about 30 years ago, and it said we'll be the world's largest manufacturer of anhydrous ammonia. Huh. They are. They are now the world's largest. They do about 40%. Most of it is coal-fired, and, that, and that's why we have so much CO2 in the atmosphere. The, they also waste a lot. They don't have the mechanical means to apply it super accurately, even though they got some pretty massive uh, dryland farms. They've got a lot of land that they just go out with a bucket, spread it in the rice paddy. And it's so wasteful. And if you look at some of those maps of where all the pollution is in these uh, terminal uh, river systems, you, you can just see all the growth, the green algae growth, and the phosphate problems. Yeah. So we're fortunately, we have the ability. We can do it, we can straighten out this nutrient problem not only in the atmosphere but in the soil and the water we can straighten all that out we could do it in a generation we could have it all straightened out if we have the will to do it yeah and uh, it the technology exists frank to uh, make it work so going full circle on the discussion green ammonia is zero carbon and that cleans up the air and there are other types of phosphate coming and sulfur that are super low column uh carbon they're called polyhalites and polysafe sulfates and they're just natural uh deposits that occur so there's very little energy loss in building um, uh, some of the materials we need right one of the other points i want to make To you about green ammonia is once you lead into it once you understand it not only does the uh, nitrogen bill come way down so does the phosphate bill and so does the potassium bill because Mm -hmm. guess what you gotta band it ammonia means you gotta band it you they force your hand and that's the secret is you know sometimes we'll have a toolbar running and there'll be a little puffer come out. I call them puffers or little streams of vapor. you know. Oh, here comes the liquid salesman. Look out. He's going to load us up now. And they do. They think you're losing it all. You're not even close to losing it. Raise it out of the ground. Take a look. So uh, we have uh, some people that have inventory that want to tell the story that matches their inventory.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's where the mistake is at. We need the TVA back. We need people with absolute moral suasion to walk into a fertilizer dealership and tell them not to say that anymore. Yeah. You know? So that's my little vendetta. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: One of my hey, best friends worked for the TVA. You know, he was my teacher, Roger Wilson. And, God, I just couldn't believe how powerful those guys were in um, making sure we didn't have a bunch of Mr. Haney's running around trying to sell something that didn't really belong. It was it was a weed. It was a plant out of place. It did not belong there.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, we, we need that back if we could right. get it back. So green play works right into that. Green play ammonia means that it will be green, zero carbon. You'll get all kinds of carbon credits uh, for doing it. In no-till, you get carbon credits. I think they call it smart agriculture now. Um, Once again, it's another government term, but really, it's economics. It's just flat as economics. You can do it if you conserve. If you start thinking conservation. Right. So I hope I was kind of brief on it. I hope, but no,
2: it's great. it,
1: it all existed at one time. It's just that the greed of fossil fueling took over, and once it took over, it, it, North America became... I remember people visiting with me in Argentina and Chile. Remember Carlos Graveto?
2: Sure. We had him at the no He thought conference.
1: we were nuts. He yeah. thought we were nuts when he first came up. What are you doing? And it, it, he was educated, by the way, at um, San Luis Obispo. And right. so he spoke really good English, and, and he was a conservationist. And, yeah, we got a little out of hand at one time, in which um, I think it was kind of like the old American way. You know, we're in control of it, and we can do it. We can make it happen. But, boy, is it it's not full of conservation. It's pretty ugly sometimes. Right. You know? Hey,
2: this has been great. We've talked for quite a while, and uh, I think we ought to wind this up. But, boy, you had a lot of fabulous ideas in here. I appreciate you doing this.
1: Yeah, we'll see you in January at the National No-Till Conference.
0: That's it for this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. Thanks to Frank Lester and Guy Swanson for that great conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, Source from Sound Agriculture, for helping to make this podcast possible a transcript of this episode and our archive of previous podcast episodes are both available at no-till slash podcasts for our entire staff here at no-till farmer i'm mccain vogel thanks for listening keep on no-tilling and have a great day